This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So hello, everyone. Um, welcome to San Francisco Zen Center's online Zendo and Buddha Hall. Uh, my name, as uh, Koto uh, already introduced me, is Kyoshin Wendy Lewis. And this morning, I will be speaking about how I see myself as a priest and a practitioner uh, during this time of the pandemic and our cultural shifts that seem to be happening, and how that um, reflects my personal life and also my life uh, in the community of San Francisco Zen Center where I'm a resident. Um, I'm framing um, my talk as um, an examination of love, uh, white privilege, and diversity. So, um, I uh, would describe myself as a kind of between person in terms of race and class and background ethnicity. Um, and I'm sure, you know, as you see my face on the screen, uh, you sort of see a white middle class, older woman, <laughs> middle, middle aged, something like that. And that's, you know, an accurate perception. Um, and at the same time, uh, my family was, um, is quite diverse. And um, I grew up in a poor environment. Um, I was talking to one of my sisters about this once, and I said, well, you know, I saw that there wasn't enough food, so I took less. And she said, I saw there wasn't enough, and I took more. <laughs> and we just kind of laughed, you know. This is our world, our normal, and um, how that feels as you, you know, as you grow up and you start to see uh, and meet people and make friends with people who have very different backgrounds. Um, so uh, also, my mother didn't like me very much. I, uh, I think I was a sort of a disconcerting um, element in her life. My two older siblings were uh, dark and they had that sort of this sort of coarse hair um, and very dark eyes and um, then I was born and I <laughs> was white like my father. Uh, and um, my mom had uh, suffered, if that's the right word for it. Um, when she was growing up, her family uh, perceived her as, they called her blackie, because she had very dark skin when she was little. And uh, they favored her white-skinned sister. So that was her background for sort of how she perceived me. And it was so disconcerting. And her, her, the darkness of her skin was probably from a uh, background of her ethnic family. Um, but when I, she said when I was born, she couldn't believe I was hers. You know, she looked at her husband every day, but somehow uh, that didn't quite click. But very confusing for me. And I was once in this kind of new agey workshop and we were instructed 
to create a sacred space. And it, we were supposed to invite all of our ancestors into this space. So um, I, after the exercise, the facilitator, you know, said, well, what was that like? And I said, well, it was really hard for me to get all those white people and those dark people into the same space. And uh, she said something like, well, imagine how difficult that is to do in your own body. So this has been a, a sort of theme in my life. Uh, sometimes it fades and sometimes it comes back into um, sort of focus or uh, uh, life, I guess you would call it. But of course, you know, there's this extraordinarily diverse background that I have of these people, you know, uh, across a certain portion of the world uh, who were wandering around and their background of their joys and their griefs and everything. And it's also enriches my life. Uh, my brothers-in-law uh, are a, a basic all of mixed race, and that includes Mexican, Colombian, American Indian, Puerto Rican, black, and white. So, uh, and one of my mother's sisters uh, lived in the housing projects in, in San Francisco, and her uh, daughter uh, married um, a black man who she had grown up with, and so her children are of mixed race. So what does all this, you know, and tons of things I've left out, of course, uh, but what is this background and these circumstances, you know, what does that make me? And I think it's hard to say. I um, kind of am sort of a both and neither, <laughs> but I think um, what it does, it sort of makes me aware of difference and equality in a direct way. Um, I always feel safer in diverse, uh, racially and ethnically diverse groups. Uh, but I've lived at Zen Center now for um, over 30 years. And um, it is a, you know, pretty white atmosphere. And there's little shifts, but it usually ends up being that um, again and again, sort of settling into that uh, form. So I've, you know, found myself negotiating uh, something, you know, I think of as it, the narrowness of the culture and um, sort of examining myself at the edges and in the, you know, and also within the power structure and also fascinated by the, you know, conservative, um, how conservative people who are in power positions, both, you know, um, spiritually and administratively can be. Um, and uh, what I would say that as a priest and Dharma heir, <laughs> I've made you know, this ethical commitment to uphold the precepts and to offer that ethical freedom to others. Now, traditionally, a bodhisattva is one who gives fearlessness. So um, I think there are various interpretations of that, but it is appropriate, you know, to try to find a way to um, model and embody 
and teach fearlessness uh, as a transformative and transforming possibility. So imagine a context of fearlessness and how that would work in a diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible community. So um, this is not, you know, like I think often this fearlessness is interpreted as, you know, go after what you want and, you know, just avoid everything that's disturbing or uninteresting or that sort of thing. Um, I think it is more this necessary fearlessness of living by the precepts. You have to be very fearless to face what they show you about yourself and about your relationships and about the world. And also to um, practice some sort of renunciation in terms of power and status and wealth and conventional success. And all of these sort of serve to cover over our innate fears. So I think examination of those fears uh, can ease our possessiveness and confer freedom and allow us to live by the model of what we call the Bodhisattva. It's a life of joy and embarrassments, you know, self-reflection and also of non-clinging. So I think many of us are almost, basically all of us are being asked, you know, to um, embrace or enter a time of solitude, shelter in place, quarantine, um, you know, to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And that's very challenging. Um, I think solitude is, has many conditions to it chosen or unchosen, and those can be peace, restlessness, uh, anxiety, reflection, boredom, depression, busyness, and all kinds of states related to those. Um, and there are many types of solitude and side effects, many types of side effects to solitude. And one type of solitude that's kind of been examined for its pathological aspects is the chosen solitude of kind of monotone and monochrome social constructs or communities. They're defined as communities. And these constructs shut out what might irritate, disturb, or challenge the status quo. That's kind of how they're defined, whether it's um, actually stated or articulated or not. And visitors to those constructs are expected to behave appropriately or be rejected or embarrassed or something like that. And when they behave appropriately, they're often rewarded, but it's conditional on how they continue to behave and so on. So recently I um, read a biography of uh, this English knight of the 12th and 13th centuries. His name is William Marshall. And in it, the author described the origins of the word courtesy, and which is how to act at court. So what this means, basically, is knowing those whom you should flatter and those you should shun. And that describes your position in court. 
So William Marshall, part of the reason uh, the author was talking about all this was that William Marshall for a time was excluded from court. And it was based on some gossip and accusations from people who might have been jealous or suspicious of his you know, fame and his position as a tournament knight. So they wanted to, um, you know, uh, destroy his reputation, basically. Um, and this is, you know, simple human nature, you know, and it's an ordinary aspect of community life. I sometimes find myself, you know, sort of struggling against this, uh, these constructs, and then realizing, well, you know, this is people, this is human nature, you know, this is how we function in a certain way. And it has some positive aspects, not which I'm not talking about so much. Uh, today, but um, its underpinning is this kind of gossip and um, the, you know, this exchange of opinions and judgments that um, are by people who have power. And that is, that, that is kind of, um, that's the basis for making decisions about hierarchy and um, all that kind of stuff. Like who's going to be favored and who's going to be shunned. <laughs> so um, the social construct at San Francisco Zen Center, and this is by, you know, um, a sort of reluctant admission, as well as by criticism from people, is um, one of white privilege. It just, that's what works. That's how uh, things function. So I think there's deep kindness and generosity and intelligence in this community. I, I benefit, many people benefit, no matter what their life you know, situation might be. Um, yet, you know, the construct remains um, as the operative status quo. So uh, many years ago, uh, the Avis at that time, told me that a um, man, he's a, he was a man, a black man from Africa who was living in residence at city center, told her that he thought that Zen Center was racist. And I said, well, did you tell him he's right? And she, she just looked at me like in shock. And, you know, our conversation just kind of fell apart. But I wondered, you know, what, what, what is the, um, if, if, if someone is having that experience, what is our response? Is it denial? Is it, you know, sort of trying to, you know, sort of being condescending? Is it, what is it? What, you know, how can we respond to someone's experience? So um, after 50 years, this institution and its residents are wonderfully welcoming again, you know, and offer the Dharma in supportive and generous ways. And yet there is this insular quality consistent. And there's been, you know, 25 years of training. Uh, I've been here for 30 years and at least 25 of those years, we've been doing these trainings in multiculturalism and diversity and related topics. Um, and yet the dominant face and leadership of this institution is white, middle-class to wealthy, and culturally monotone. 
um, and that's the majority. And when criticism of this structure is offered, it's, you know, it's been described as throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, but, you know, what is the baby? And what is a bathwater? And who's making those decisions about what is important and what is valuable? What is, uh, anyway, you get the idea. But in my experience, you know, these challenges to the iteration of the status quo are not proposed as destructive. They are, they, you know, arise from this deep love and hope and commitment to Buddhist practice and Buddhist um, inquiry and Zen realities and teachers and all of that. And yet they're generally met, these criticisms, um, with a sort of defensiveness and denial and hostility even. I once, you know, uh, was in a situation where, uh, anyway, I won't, I, I won't go too much into it. I think you'll get the, uh, and I questioned an abbot about um, the decision-making and how it was unfolding. And he snapped at me and said, well, that's what I want. And I thought, well, that's honest, but is it how we should do things? I, I don't know, but I, I was kind of taken aback and also thought, okay, this is true. Um, it, I've noticed this, and maybe, maybe this is not, uh, you know, I don't know what this is exactly, but often people are accidentally honest with me. And I think that happens, you know, generally with other people as well. But I, that's what I felt was happening in that moment. But the challenge, you know, of questioning, you know, a sort of monotone, monochrome status quo is that it's naturally narcissistic, of course, you know. And with narcissism comes fear of uh, criticism and, you know, a punitive response to criticism. And I think, you know, a sort of fearful institution and fearful leadership rewards and instills fear, reticence, and, inf and, you know, invites flattery of itself rather than exemplifying or conferring the fearlessness that the bodhisattva is meant to be offering. So um, at one point in my Zen Center career, I was working with an abbot and then an abbess on um, a professional code of ethics. And this was related to an internal institution called the Zen Center School. So um, the document was presented to three groups uh, beyond the, of, you know, some people in the, at the abbatial level looked at it first, but uh, the priest groups were one at City Center, one at Green Gulch, and then a non-resident resident priest group that happened to be uh, work, you know, working together at that time. And the people in the highest levels of spiritual leadership made comments like, well, we don't need this, we have the precepts. And then other priests were, for some reason, especially reactive to the sections referring to sexual harassment, and they're pretty standard, you know. Um, and the non-resident priests were the most enthusiastic. And um, one of the people in there said, well, isn't this a no-brainer? 
and the group agreed. So I thought this was an interesting combination of responses. And the um, code of ethics, of course, was never adopted. But it was interesting to see what kind of responses it uh, arose from it. So this type of document, you know, requires accountability. And even more, what I think it does, it supports institutional, personal, and spiritual development and maturity. Um, the 16 precepts don't address cultural circumstances, and they don't include the more detailed Buddhist precepts regarding behavior in community or in relationship to the world. They also don't propose consequences or the possibility of investigating the results of personal or institutional behavior. You know, a process of acknowledgement, apology, and repair or reconciliation. So um, in the recent Dharma talks by uh, San Francisco Zen Center leaders and teachers, I haven't heard acknowledgement or apologies um, regarding the cultural and leadership structure of white privilege or its consequences. I haven't heard that. Uh, one person did surprise me by saying that any resolution was up to the next generation. And I was surprised and because it sounded like a kind of denial of responsibility. Well, we didn't do it. So you take it up. You take the responsibility. Um, and the loss of an opportunity for some sort of acknowledgement and consideration, reflection maybe. And of course, the next generation is composed of people chosen because they're like those who chose them. So, so are they able to uh, make different decisions or changes? Um, and are they aware, you know, of the exceptions they hold for themselves? And are they willing to relinquish them or offer them to others? And are they willing to question a system of courtesy and privilege? And privilege can be understood as private law. So it, it, it applies only to certain people. So the paradoxical consequence uh, for me of these talks, as well as you know, some of the other institutional responses and silence, is that I feel kind of relieved of doubting my perceptions about this and about the leadership structure and function. A friend of mine commented, um, privilege is blind. And I thought, okay, but I don't think that means at all for me that um, awareness and change aren't possible or that people from white privileged backgrounds don't care. I think that there's deep caring and I, there's so many people who I trust and love and who I feel uh, loved by. And it's not, so it's not based on inability, but um, I think that um, there has to be, or there could be, or there might be a sort of genuine process of acknowledgement and reparation, and that would benefit everyone. Because I think that um, one of the things about a context of fear 
is that it impacts everyone. And people are afraid for other reasons beside their ethnic or racial background or other things like that. Um, there's, that is shared, that sort of, uh, how do I do this right? And how am I seen? And if I'm not um, invited to be part of some of the structure is, what does that say about me and who I am and how I express myself and that sort of thing. So I think it, it permeates the atmosphere. Uh, the next Buddha is um, represented by the Bodhisattva Maitreya, or the friend. And I think this is a very hopeful promise for the near and the far future. Um, as I was thinking about all my many experiences in my life, I, uh, one of the ones that sort of floated to the surface is that uh, when I got my first real job, uh, I was 19 and I was working for an insurance company. There was a group of us who were hired to um, rearrange and clean up their filing system. It was all paper, things were paper clipped together and stapled and all over the place. And so we were putting all these things in order. And our boss, the manager, was this black woman and she and I just liked each other. And I trusted her and she trusted me. And she, she very soon asked me if I would be the supervisor of the group. And so that she could not have to be there at night, which is when we were working. And um, we just, I don't know what, you know, it was something about that professional and personal friendliness. It was so natural and so efficient and, you know, it was fun and enjoyable. And I have um, a photo of us that somebody in the group took of, uh, of us talking to each other in the office. And, you know, I've kept that all these years. Just, I don't know, so, anyway, significant for me. And this had nothing to do with being politically correct or anything like that. It was just one of those little moments of life. Um, I think at Zen Center, the white atmosphere, one of the side effects of it is that it makes me very self-conscious and awkward. Um, I, um, you know, sort of an error of interaction with someone can be perceived as racist pretty easily. And um, I think it's at the same time, it's not possible, you know, to sort of be direct or even bring in some sort of, uh, that, that sort of humor of like, what an idiot, you know, that I was to say that or do that. You, you know, that's not um, in there or a discussion of where that comes from and how it can be resolved or anything. And, you know, I make mistakes and I embarrass myself and myself and I also do the opposite. I feel very comfortable and met and, you know, uh, in other situations. And of course I have this odd little thing of my appearance and my background kind of not exactly being in sync. Not not and yet not at the same time. Um, I think that uh, some people uh, interpret criticisms and concerns 
as resentment and others fear, actually fear for the safety of those who offer critique. Um, and yet support that's offered is usually offered in private. And I don't think this is about somebody being right in the context of others being wrong, but I'm aware of this undercurrent of fear and fearfulness. And I wonder what purpose it serves, particularly, you know, in this Zen Buddhist context. And I think the teachings of Buddhism are sometimes offered in a condescending way from this position of kind of relative safety and privilege. You know, there's a disconcerting quality to this, particularly, you know, when circumstances are unsafe and tenuous for many people, particularly, you know, in our situation right now. And um, people who are outside or on the edges of these dominant or what we consider dominant cultural structures. In my understanding, you know, the purpose of the teachings and particularly the ethical teachings is to take us apart and put us back together again and again. And this requires fearlessness and humility. I think San Francisco Zen Center has this extraordinary opportunity to make a difference in the world. And in some ways it does and has. Um, but this, you know, this sincere practice and the generosity and the integrity of the spiritual administrative leadership and the residents and the non-residents can give you know, any effort at change all the fearlessness it needs. So what are we waiting for? you know, in terms of our sort of view the world has of us as this privileged white institution. Why, what are we waiting for? Um, I think uh, in honor of the potential of this, the future Buddha, Bodhisattva Maitreya, I think this institution can cultivate friendliness on a wide level. I suggest acknowledgement, apology, and a proposal of reparation with committed, articulated, and accountable policies addressing diversity, equity, equity, inclusivity, and accessibility. Make promises and keep them, and this is love. I'm aware, you know, that a Dharma talk, <laughs> you know, doesn't make a significant impact, and that I, you know, and what I have said are limited and limited to these particular circumstances and what I propose to address. Um, I um, think that San Francisco Zen Center will go on pretty much the same and maybe there'll be a few tweaks and adjustments. And I would say be wary of lip service to um, kind of, what do you call it? Um, change or ideology or something like that, but also be confident in the teachings and the practice. That is the gold. According to Dogen, the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, if you say that you do not need to fan yourself 
because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of that, the wind of the Buddhist house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.